Um, could you show me that picture of Crabtown? Oh, yes, I can. But then I have to open this. <laughs> Why does it do this today? Sorry. No, that's not right. I can see it already. This is Annie Boykus. She's an anthropologist by training, and one thing she'd like to know right now, besides what the deal is with her password, is whether there's a way to make slums or informal settlements is another word that's sometimes used for them a better place to live. So um, what we're looking at now is a, is a picture of uh, Crabtown coming down into the settlement. So there's the staircase. The settlement is, is located um, uh, in, in a big part of the riverbed um, of the Congo Valley River in Freetown. And um, so you can see here that um, this is quite a steep staircase. That This informal down. settlement has been in Sierra Leone's capital for at least 30 years. In one of the photos... There's a house with a rusted tin roof. The roof slopes down to about a meter above the ground, and the rest of the house is underground. And you said that Crabtown is basically built on a riverbed. Yeah, most of it is 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 in the river. Oh, okay. But sorry, why would people build in a settlement in the riverbed? Because there's no land available for them. From Deutsche Welle, I'm Kathleen Schuster, and this is World in Progress. Cities across the globe are growing, but many aren't equipped to handle the number of people who already live there. This trend is leading to drastic change that's altering the character of cities. Right now, nearly 60% of people on Earth live in an urban area, and the UN is expecting that number to grow by another 600 million people by the end of the decade. Annie Boykis, the woman you just heard, says this trend is also leading to a noticeable uptick in what she calls urban planning by bulldozer, when decision makers clear entire parts of cities to modernize, to make their space more attractive. We're going to hear more from Annie Boykis about where the informal settlement Crabtown fits into all of this a bit later. First, though, let's consider an example making headlines in Egypt. Egypt recently relocated its capital an hour's drive east of Cairo, and one of the highways it's building to connect the two cities is already having a big impact on one of Cairo's most important cemeteries, known as the City of the Dead. The thing is, though, outcry over its destruction isn't just about disturbing the dead or even protecting a historic site. Reporter Tyler Drake has more. All these, these were tombs. This was a very tight uh, place, and all these are tombs. All these all were these tombs. Yes, tombs. yes. All these were demolished. <coughs> and uh, like you see the tombstones there, I just told them to take them and put them there because I, I uh, was afraid that they're going to, to get demolished. This is Mustafa El-Sadek, an obstetrician turned archaeologist who decided to start visiting the cemetery complex of the City of the Dead two years ago following his curiosity for Islamic history. As he walks through narrow dirt tracks, among the sinkholes left by what remains of 14th-century-old burial grounds, he points to several damaged tombstones that have been left abandoned in between the rubble of the demolished temples. And this is another one, this is another one, this is another one, this is another one, this is another one. All these were uh, graveyards for people who were buried here. One uh, look at this. These are tombstones of people. And even you have his name here, Muhammad Balikh. 
for centuries, families of all kind have buried their relatives in the city of the dead, turning the area into one of the most vibrant pieces of Egyptian history. Were people as important as writer Taha Hussein, singer Um Kalthum, or the Egyptian royal family are buried. It's considered one of the most important cemeteries in Islam because it contains shrines to several important figures in the Islamic faith. And it's not just a place for the dead, but also for the living. As far back as the 9th century, scholars and students from the Quranic schools located in some of the funerary complexes already lived in the area. And starting in the 1950s, over a million underprivileged Egyptians began arriving here, living in makeshift slums, some working as groundkeepers or living inside the mausoleums. But now, this place where many live and many rest in peace may be erased completely. During one of the demolitions that began last May to clear up the way for a new highway, El Sadiq discovered a tombstone dating back to the 9th century. The stone contains an old Qufic-style calligraphy scripture that, despite its complexity, due to its extremely angular design and absence of diacritics, casts some light into the early stages of the cemetery, 200 years after the Arab conquerors of Egypt first established it. He stares at the bright white tome that stands alone in front of him. It's the only one that hasn't been exhumated yet. All these graves got opened to remove the dead. See this one? This is the place where the, they removed the dead from it. And you have the stone there, was the name of the guy. This was another place. This was another, another place. And uh, probably others they didn't remove because um, they had no body to, to, to remove them. See this one in, 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 uh, in white? It's still there because it didn't remove the dead. So this is the only one that is even has a, a lock on it up till now and nothing next to it. One of the mausoleums that is marked for demolition is the El Daramali Basha Cemetery. Its owner, whose relatives are linked to the royal family and buried there, is 78-year-old Wahid al-Manderli. He has spent almost every day here at the site since he found out the government's plans to destroy it. I refuse to remove this site because the graves here are historically listed in the civilization coordination. And the Minister of Housing stated in the official Gazette that these sites must be protected by force of law because they are part of the history. The Egyptian government wants this to be a part of an urban development project as a broader effort to modernize Egypt. Since President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi came to power in 2014, some 7,000 kilometers of roads and around 900 bridges and tunnels have been built across the country according to official figures. Contractors tied to the military have carried out much of the work. Historic Cairo, where the city of the dead is located, is completely changing. Although the plan was announced almost 10 years ago, the demolitions have been sped up over the last two years, leaving entire areas completely bulldozed. 
This year's work began in the south of the necropolis around El Daramali Basha Mausoleum without prior notice. We felt a sense of sorrow when they told us. I first heard about it a while ago, and markers for demolition were placed on the Daramali Cemetery. I'm unhappy not only for my family's cemetery, but also for the entire area. The Egyptian government considers the buried bodies as mere bones. Yet when these people died, they wanted to be buried and remain in the same place and not be dug up. Islamic scholars have also debated this point. Of course, it's not desirable. The Egyptian government has not offered any financial compensation for the removal of the tombs and exhumation of the bodies. But families will be provided with a much smaller piece of land in the desert, about 56 kilometers southwest Cairo, for the relocation of their relatives' remains. According to El Manderli, people who own 500 square meter tombs will only be given 14 square meters to hold up to 14 bodies, a much tighter space than in the original emplacement. In addition, the tombs that they are giving us instead are just for 25 years, which means that after 25 years, another government may come and demand that we return them. Plans to demolish the city of the dead are not new. Not long after it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1979, an architect and development researcher named Galila El Kadi started conducting research while she was a professor at the Cairo University in collaboration with the University of Paris on how the site was used both as a cemetery and a place to live. And we focused on the urban and architectural value huh, to uh, push the, the state to uh, take some measures huh, to safeguard this site. Huh? And because at the epoch, the Minister of Housing had also the idea to remove all the tombs to desert land and to use the land uh, for a better uh, investment of the land, huh? for uh, real estate operations. Over the next 30 years, El Kadi and her team tried to sensitize both governments and public opinion about the value of this site through a series of exhibitions, conferences, and articles. Their efforts worked until the late 2000s, when new threats to the area started to show up in the horizon after the launch of the Cairo 2050 plan. El Kadi says that the current prime minister, Mustafa Madbouli, had a strong desire to implement this relocation as far back as 2009. The Prime Minister was an employee of civil coordination before assuming his last role, and he had this proposal and this project to remove and transform this entire region and gave it to his superiors before, but it was rejected until he became Prime Minister. El Kadi, the researcher, says Matbuli finally began to execute this plan in 2020, when the new network of roads was launched. That is when she and her team started advocating for the preservation of this place again. After getting UNESCO involved, the militians stopped for a while in July and President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi convened a committee to re-evaluate the proposal, with Madbouli as its chairman. He promised not to touch the heritage either in uh, 
uh, historical Cairo or in the uh, city of the dead. But it was a sort of uh, manoeuvre, a sort of manoeuvre to calm the UNESCO committee, which have produced a very bad report about the state of the heritage in Egypt before this meeting. The report was very, very bad and very critical toward Egyptian authorities and their treatment and behavior towards the heritage and in particular historical Cairo. The committee also included a team of specialists, like Galila, who conducted an impact study and found out that the new road will save traveling time for the driver by only two minutes. She says this further shows the government didn't actually study the potential impact of the highway on the area. The thought of it angers El Manderli. How is it possible to ruin an ancient site in order to save drivers two minutes of their time? This is a heinous crime against the past, and future generations will remember them. El Qadi says Egypt is taking its cues from Dubai and building its showy new capital, known as the new administrative capital, right outside Cairo, is just the beginning. If you go to visit the new capital, huh, you saw it's a copy of Dubai. They are now really distracting the memory of the country and the memory of the places and its history. To write, to write their own narrative, they are writing a new history, a new narrative huh, by destroying all the history and our memory, our heritage. It's a catastrophe for the heritage. We will not find historical Cairo during the coming few years. History is not the only thing that is being demolished in the city of the dead. As these events unfold, some kids who live in the area play with a kite made of three palm tree wood sticks and a string of rope. One of them, eight-year-old Mohammed, loves his neighborhood and doesn't want to leave. I love this place and I play here a lot with my friends. I've always liked living here. His parents, Um Hassan and Abu Hassan, have worked cleaning and maintaining several tombs in the area until they moved to El Daramali Basha Mausoleum, where Manderli relatives are buried, in 2014. But now their future is uncertain. The couple have three children and rely on the neighborhood to survive. Not many people like them want to talk due to the constant presence of the authorities in the area. I clean the graves every day to remove dust. I appreciate this area because I can work here, so I can care for my family. Without it, we'd all go hungry and be homeless. I put a lot of effort into my job so I can provide for my kids because I'm in charge of everything, getting them to school every day and helping them with homework. My spouse can't take care of two families. He's married to another woman and has other children. We won't be able to leave since my heart is connected to this spot. My livelihood depends on it. 
Like Um Hassan and Abu Hassan's case, thousands of families have arrived in the area since the 1950s, when Cairo started growing and rural migration came to the capital. According to researcher Galila El-Kadi, it's not just the tomb keepers and their families that live here, but also most of the homeless people of Cairo and the survivors of the 1992 earthquake, who were promised social housing and occupied the mausoleums of their own families provisionally while they waited for their apartments. Some of them are still waiting. There are also makeshift slums in the empty areas of the complex. All of these groups make up the social fabric of this place. Where would the people who live here go if they demolish the cemeteries? My main goal as a cemetery guard is to find a place for me and my family to live. Unfortunately, I don't have the money to rent an apartment. If we're relocated to the new cities, it would cost us a lot of money to go to work and come back. There are no job prospects out there. Some of the residents in the area are being relocated to social housing on the outskirts of Cairo, more than an hour away by bus from their current homes. But this plan doesn't include any realistic work or housing options for their survival. People who live here, they spend nothing. They don't pay rent. Most of them, they don't pay electricity and water. And some people give them money. The other point is that they are going to transfer them to other places that they have to pay rent, they have to pay electricity, they have to pay um, uh, water and there will be no money um, coming because they, they earn money from living here. I'm definitely with that the people should not have been living here from the start. It's not a very nice place to bring up your children in it. But it was a problem that they had and, and it's, it's, it's been there. Okay, relocate them. Find a, a, a way so that they, you can help them, that uh, they will not suffer uh, in, the, in the, the new house and things like that. But don't destroy this. But there is some hope for the city of the dead and for the people who depend on it. In July, UNESCO published their concerns after several media outlets reported on the demolitions and asked the Egyptian government, which initially denied the events, to put any action on hold until UHRC's Urban Regeneration Project for Historic Cairo is approved. A final UNESCO resolution will be reached at the end of September, after Galila Al-Kadi and her team present their findings on the urban development projects at the extended 45th session of the World Heritage Committee in Saudi Arabia. Their aim will be to get the City of the Dead included in the World Heritage in Danger list to put the Egyptian government under international public scrutiny. But if in the end the government carries out the project, Mustafa El Sadek says he doesn't want to come back here. If they demolish it, I won't be coming here again. I don't, I don't wish to see it, uh, uh, to come and see. I know the people, I know everybody here. Everybody knows me here. And I don't wish to... And if they make it a road, I definitely won't use this road. Definitely. Uh, and uh, I hope I don't live to see this place uh, demolished. Um, if I'm still alive, I won't be coming to see it.
Reporter Tyler Drake, along with Alejandro Matran, Victoria Lobo, and Fatma Ahmed. Earlier, we heard from a woman named Annie Boykus. Um, I'll show you my favorite place in the world. <laughs> um, is Freetown in Sierra Leone. She's a junior researcher at the Center for Development Research at the University of Bonn. And the reason I wanted to talk to her is because she's been helping develop a really intriguing project for the past 10 years that's trying to diffuse the inherent tension between urban planning in developing cities, and what most people might call slums. Another word for that is informal settlements. Cairo isn't the only one demolishing these areas. This is also happening in places like Lagos and Nairobi. The list goes on. We're going to look at her favorite place first, though. So I um, can take you to Craptown. <laughs> the riverbed settlement in Sierra Leone's capital. Okay, so um, what we see on the map here is... Um, which is a little bit uh, about the math that is behind the map. So we see different colors on the maps from... The map of uh, the world on her screen looks a little bit like Google Maps, except the continents are divided into small, colorful blocks, and the only ones that are colored in are South America, Africa, and Asia. The spectrum of color from black to yellow represents street access. Uh, in layman's terms, we could say is that how many houses do I need to pass before I get to the street? So if we look at Crab Town here, it's sort of slightly orangey color in terms of uh, street access. So, And that gives us about a six. So that's a low access. So it means that from most of the houses within this block, that's this orange color, I would probably have to cross about, say, one, two, three, four, five, six houses to get to the nearest street access. Um, and If you think about where you live, consider how far you are from a street and how this street helps you see your surroundings and connects you to the things you need. That's the thinking behind this project, which basically began 30 years ago. An NGO called Slum Dwellers International wanted to understand these areas better, so they started collecting lots and lots of data from informal settlements. And then years later, researchers from the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit, and the University of Chicago began pooling this data, plus data from OpenStreetMap. When we collected all of this data and started aggregating all of this data, we also started thinking about how can this data be used um, more efficiently or more effectively with communities to develop upgrading and settlement plans for their communities. The upgrading and the impetus for communities to stay where they are at and develop their settlements together with their local governments and other stakeholders so as to not disrupt their social um, fabric, to maintain their space in the city. And one of these practices the community does in the upgrading is called reblocking, where they rearrange their own settlements. The map works a bit like a metal detector, if you will. They know roughly where these areas are, but they don't know exactly what's beneath the surface. It's like looking into a black box. So the Million Neighborhoods map grew out of a, a desire to make these settlements not only visible, but to also give communities and their cities an overview of what informal settlements look like, um, because very often they are regarded as illegible and sort of these masses that can't be entered because they don't um, 
conform to how the city normally sees or how people see the urban. And it was a way for us to then also give communities a tool to be able to think about their upgrading processes with minimal disruption, both to their physical neighborhoods, but also to their social fabric and to keep them in place where they're at. So why is it that so many people live in informal settlements in the first place? Right now, about one in eight people worldwide is living like this, in precarious housing that's usually not recognized as part of a city. We know this in urban law. It's the the bright lights of the city. The city means opportunity for people. People come to informal settlements and they settle there because very often um, city governments have not planned far enough ahead in their strategies to accommodate the growing populations of the cities. People have babies. They want futures for those children. Uh, So one of the reasons is that just the, the natural development and growth of the city is not considered by local governments, is not adequately um, prepared for. We see this happening in sub-Saharan Africa, especially at the moment where cities are growing. We have huge youth bulge in cities. We have lots of young people being born in the cities every day, and there's just simply not the resources or the political will very often to develop. Some of these places have water and electricity, but again, generally thanks to the ingenuity of the people living there. One of the things that actually fascinates us so much is that, going back to Eleanor Ostrom, is this idea of self-organization, that people self-organize, people invest in their homes, people might arrive with a couple of corrugated iron sheets, and as years go by, people invest in bricks that they make in the informal settlement and that they buy and and invest in this. Um, I shared with you the land banking that happens in many of the coastal slums in Sierra Leone and even in Liberia, where people use sand that they harvest from the river or even from across the bay um, in boats and they put sticks down and they put compact sand with garbage and to reclaim land from the sea or from the riverbed to build their houses on. So in Sierra Leone, for example, the slum communities have a slogan, take the slumness from the people and not the people from the slum. Um, The Million Neighborhoods Initiative isn't quite at the point where it can be used as a tool on a wider scale yet. But Annie Boykis says it will be soon. In the meantime, she worries about the terms being thrown around to gloss over efforts to get rid of these settlements, like modernization or managed retreat, which refers to danger posed by climate change. These are both real concerns, though. It's a known fact that urban growth can make the impact of climate change worse, for example. Think floodwaters that can't be absorbed by a concrete jungle. And that brings us right back to Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. It's one of the rare places where leadership is working to incorporate informal settlements and help improve them. Crabtown, though, seems like a bit of an elephant in the urbanization slash climate change room, though. So, sorry. So even in this case where people are living in a riverbed where they can, I mean, obviously they're going to get flooded at some point (laughs) in the year. That's still something that that NGOs and projects like yours would defend as, well, they live here, so we need to help them live better? Or is that an oversimplification? Um, Yeah, I think that none of us advocate for people living where it will endanger their lives. But the solutions are the way out of there are multiple and need to be addressed from different angles. So, for example, this house you can see here that is almost completely subsided into the riverbed is a concrete house. This is a house, I think, at least 40 square meters big. This is a significant investment that the homeowner has put into this house. And so 
while we can on the one hand say it's not good for someone to live here, when we we talk about relocation or moving people out of danger, um, we have to have plans of how to do that in a way that is sustainable, but is also is, is, is dignified in a way. So who will compensate this person for this investment? How do we think about the compensation? How do we think about the relocation of an entire community, the, the social structures that goes? We have many projects with very good intentions have relocated people, but with very little attention to the social structure and to the investments that people have made in their homes. So it's it's a difficult question, but it is a question that I think can be answered and we can find solutions by working together and consulting communities as these projects are done. So I think none of us advocate for people living in places that are dangerous to their lives. But in the same vein, we have to respect and meet people where they're at to find solutions together, to give them opportunities for safer living, for example. I think we're going to end there. Yeah. Today's episode of World in Progress was produced by Vipka Teichmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster, with special thanks to Natalie Muller. Our sound engineer was Ziad Abu Sleiman. You can listen back to this and past episodes of World in Progress on our website, dw.com. We're also on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Want to get in touch with us? Well, send us an email at worldinprogress at dw.com. I'm Kathleen Schuster. That's it for World in Progress. Be sure to check back in here next week for more great stories from around the world. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.